For those of you who aren't aware of it, um, and many of you might not be because I preach this whole sermon on splitting logs, I heat with coal. Some of you are like, what? Yeah, we're heating the house with coal now, and, uh, and you know, the stove that we have, I mean, we have a gas furnace too, but the stove that we have is actually made for coal, and we found out as we were trying to heat nonstop with wood that it's causing problems with the, with the stove. It's not meant to, to burn wood, and we're having creosote built up and all of this kind of stuff, and just, just the way the stove is designed, it's made for coal. So, anyhow, here's the benefit, though, to switching is we've noticed substantially that our heat in our house with the coal as opposed to the wood is a lot more steady. It's a lot more stable of a heat source. You know, it's, it, it doesn't fluctuate like it did when we had the wood where all of a sudden it would blaze up because it get a little air and then you cut the air off and it die down. The coal just heats so much more steady than that. And, and so that's, that's one of the benefits of it. Just the steady warm heat. Um, but... We have this interesting, the way our stove is designed, it has an automatic snap damper on the back of it, okay? Now, that sounds really technical. It's basically a little metal flap hanging on a chain that will, and, and one of those spring thermometers, and the snap portion of it is a magnet that's mounted inside, and so when it gets close and it's kind of pulling the magnet, you get boop, and, you know, so it's, it sounds a whole lot more high speed than it is. <laughs> it's not nearly as high speed as as I make it out to be, but... The little snap damper, we've noticed here lately that, uh, that the snap damper is sometimes getting stuck open. And I've had to do some little tweaking here and there and different things like that. But it, it would just get stuck open like, I mean, you probably can't even see it from there, like the level that it's just a tiny little sliver. Just a tiny, it won't quite shut all the way. Won't quite shut all the way. And so it, when it does that, you got to understand that it'll open up sometimes and get it good and hot, and then it goes to close, and it wants to pull the oxygen. And my stove is not an airtight stove. It can still get a little oxygen to it and keep it going. But, boy, it, it, it really gets the thing to blazing, just really gets it to blazing when it's stuck open. Rather quickly, with just a little bit of extra air on Friday night, my house upstairs where the thermostat for the gas furnace is Read 83 degrees in the house. Now, that probably means like 76 in the bedrooms. But, um, but that, cause my thermostat's right there in the entryway foyer. So, th- this can just get, it just can go up really, really hot all of a sudden, really quick, with just the tiniest little bit of air getting to it. It's amazing how that happens. This is going to be a powerful illustration, hopefully, that I'm going to come back to a few times inside this message about how that tiniest little bit of air can just set something ablaze, okay? I want to talk about this in in one sense about the day that I got saved, the day that I gave my life to the Lord. Now, you got to understand something. I could tell you all of the correct theological answers about how a person got to heaven. I even had a story that when I was in third grade in Kansas City, Missouri, when we lived in that area, we actually lived in Independence, Missouri, but it's all pretty much the same thing, how I went to First Baptist Church in Independence, Missouri, and how I prayed the sinner's prayer in a Sunday school class, and all those things, I had all the right answers. By the way, I prayed that prayer in a Sunday school class, and I was still going to hell, okay? Praying a prayer will not get you saved. 
It's not on any page of the Bible anywhere, and I know it's taught all over Christianity that if you simply say this prayer, you'll be saved. It's just not in the Bible, okay? What is in the Bible is that through faith and genuine, genuine faith and genuine repentance that we become children of the King of God, or the King of all the universe, right? Of Jesus Christ, of, of the Father in heaven. We're his kids through faith and repentance. That often is manifest in the form of us praying a prayer, but it's not this little repeat after me sinner's prayer. And I'm not saying that if you have genuine faith and repentance, if you pray that prayer, that you're not saved. It's the faith, it's with the heart one believes unto salvation. Not with a prayer that we, that we pray. Like I can stand up here and declare to you that I'm a cheeseburger all I want to, but in fact I am not a cheeseburger, I'm just a cheese ball. Right? Okay? So it, it doesn't matter what I say if there's, if there's no genuine belief in transformation in my life. It's just not true. But so I got saved on this operating room table. As, and many of you have heard this story. I was, my diaphragm was paralyzed from a mishap with anesthesia. I'm laying there listening to my oxygen saturation going down. And I am a dead man and I know it. I'm a dead man and I know it. Now, I could go into a lot more of that story, and I could tell you all the stuff that happened there on the operating room table, and I could tell you about coming out immediately after the surgery, and, and that, you know, I was in the army at that point, and how it's my second surgery, and how that all affected me. But what I want to focus on today out of that story is the weeks and months that followed that surgery and followed that radical transformation in my life. Okay? What I did was I got just the tiniest little bit of air through salvation in Jesus Christ. Just the tiniest little bit of air in my life. I had no no deep theological understanding. If you'd have said to me, explain the doctrine of sanctification, I'd have said the doctrine of what? If you'd have asked me to explain in depth how Christ is our healer works, I'd say, what are you talking about? If you said explain justification by faith, I'd say, "What do you, I have no clue what you mean. I had just the tiniest little bit of air to this fire that began to burn inside of me. And in many ways, I was blazing white hot. This little transformation in my life, as I gave my life to the Lord, it manifested itself in such an interesting way. Here I am, second shoulder surgery, the, the big cut. This is the one where they just completely laid open my shoulder and completely rebuilt the whole thing. And i am got my arm and a shoulder immobilizer. I'm on 30 days of convalescent leave from the Army. You know, I'm at home. And, you know, I can't use my arm. I'm right-handed, all of this stuff. And yet my wife will tell you that weekly I am out mowing Everybody on my block's grass. Everybody's. Because I just wanted them to have a little piece of what I had. Like God showed up in my life and I'm like, man, if I go out and maybe if I just mow their grass, they'll, they'll be able to listen to what I have to say about how the Lord changed my life. And, and I've got some really cool stories about that and I won't bore you with all of them right now, but I can share with you some of those stories. Um, my wife would say that we would pray about everything after I got saved. Like everything. Like she'd go, what do you want for dinner? I'd say, I don't know, let's pray about it. Okay? We would pray about everything. We were at church every time the doors were open. We were serving. We were trying to figure out any way that we could to, to help other people come to understand who Jesus Christ was. I went so far as, I, I mean, I stopped listening to any kind of music at all except for Christian music. 
Now, I'm not saying that that last one, that everybody has to do that. But in my life, that was huge because I used to listen to some stuff that was totally inappropriate. And the Lord kind of cut all that out of my life for a while. Now I listen to some secular music, but I'm trying to be more careful about what I listen to. Okay? But my point is, is that in this little bit of heat of flame, this little bitty sliver of oxygen that came in the transformative power of the gospel in my life, I began to blaze white hot. And all I wanted to do was serve Jesus and tell other people about Jesus and see their lives radically transformed. I was not doing this stuff because my pastor told me I should. I wasn't doing it because they taught me in Sunday school that I should do it. I did it because for the first time in my life, I had joy. Now, let me just say real quick, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Many of us are pursuing happiness, and and quite frankly, God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your joy. Those are two different things. And we oftentimes get them confused with one another. Like, for instance, Matt and Rebecca weren't happy when Teddy came early. But that didn't steal their joy. You see the difference? Like, like God, everything in life is not about our happiness, but it is about our joy. And the difference is one is focused on the temporal and the other one is focused on the eternal. But that's a sermon for another day. Uh, but I had this kind of joy for the first time in my life. I, I had a deep-seated joy knowing that I was going to spend an eternity in the presence of my God and my King. I was like that coal stove. That the damper got stuck open just a little bit. And I was blazing hot. I was what some people would call on fire for the Lord. Maybe. I want to know if any of you have had similar experiences. I want you to sit here right now and try to recall in your own life and faith if there was ever a time where... where this was such a new concept to you and the experience that you had is, of Jesus Christ was so fresh and so powerful that, that you were like that coal stove that was burning, blazing hot. There's a friend of mine who just recently gave his life to the Lord and he's like that, burning, blazing hot. We actually, John and I were talking about this friend of mine. We said, you know, when he calms down a little bit. And and then the Lord convicted me and said, why should he calm down? Right now, every experience for this friend of mine when it comes to Jesus Christ is new and exciting. And I'm, ta- and I'm praying now that he doesn't lose his passion and, and transition into the type of life that some of us have transitioned into, that I had transitioned into. I, I transitioned into this life where I lost my extreme passion. It's not that my fire's gone out and that I walked away from Jesus. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not that at all. It's just that I become steady and constant. Like my coal heater when the snap damper is working 100% correctly. It's not bad. I haven't fallen away from the faith. I'm just not that blazing hot guy that I once was for Jesus. 
I'm just not on fire like that anymore. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm still, it's that steady burning thing and that's good, but there's just no, there's just no blazing hot that's going on there. And I don't know, maybe that's your story too. Maybe you're like, you know, I love Jesus and I'm following him. I'm burdened for Jesus, but you know what? I'm not blazing hot. I'm not finding myself filled with passion for the lost. I'm not finding myself wanting to, wanting to serve and, and, and kind of use myself up for the kingdom of God. I'm kind of finding myself holding back in areas and being reserved and cautious in areas. And, and I, don't want to, I don't want to be like that. I want to be blazing hot. So the question is, how do we rekindle that flame? How do we, who are burning steady, get the fire blazing again? How do we do that? We're going to look at Hebrews today in chapter 11, starting in verse 8 through 16. It's a big chunk of scripture for us as we preach expositorily through a book. But uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So I want to read that to you. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from a different translation. That's okay. If yours doesn't say exactly what mine does. The Bible wasn't written in English. It was originally, the New Testament was originally written in in Greek. An old ancient dialect of Greek. And so we're all just dealing with translations. And so different translators have chosen to interpret different words different ways. If you're using a pew Bible, that's an ESV. So it should stay pretty close to what mine is. All right, so starting there in Hebrews, it's towards the end of the New Testament. It's towards the end of the New Testament. i got about this much Bible left afterwards, for those who don't know where it's at. Starting in chapter 11, verse 8. Here's what it says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, By faith he went out to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose, excuse me, to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. Since she considered him faithful who promised, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity return to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Before we move on to exploring what this passage of Scripture is saying, let's pray together. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you today. We ask you to speak in a very real way into our situation here today. That you would help us to see what it means to follow you. That you would help us to see what it means to blaze white hot for you. That you would help us to see what this passage of scripture has to do with what we're talking, with what we're talking about, about burning hot for you. And Lord, that you would use us to transform our community and to be a source of heat and peace and comfort to those 
who in our community don't yet know you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen. When, when I read this passage of Scripture to you and you read along with me, you may have a hard time seeing how it connects with what I'm talking about, the snap damper on the back of the coal stove, right? However, if we take time to go over it together in a little more detail, I believe that a clear connection about with the heat and the passion of our faith will emerge. Now, before we get too far into this, I want, you to, I want to acknowledge that there may be some of us who are not familiar with Abraham's story. And if that's you, fear not. Because we have homework, right? And you may, if you're new with us or, or, or you don't know and you know, you've gone to another church, you're like, homework? What's that? I've never seen homework. I give at the end of my sermons passages of Scripture for people to go and read and so they can see that what I'm preaching is biblical. I think so many times in our world today, we're told to just believe the preacher. And I don't really think that's a fair request. Because the preacher needs to make sure that what he's teaching is grounded in Scripture. Amen? And so a lot of those things are going to be shared with you about Abraham's story out of the homework if you read that. Okay? So don't be worried about that. All right. Now, so let's go back to the text at hand. Right? In verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews chapter 11, we see that Abraham responded in obedient faith when God called him to leave his homeland and move into a new area, the promised land. Now, we talked about this obedient thing last week a little bit, this imp- that Noah, by faith, Noah built an ark, and that obedience was implied in there. And here we see again, by faith, Abraham obeyed God. And that is definitely a big part of what we're talking about. But I want to know why. I mean, he left his homeland... The place that he knew, the place that he had grown up, the place that his descendants were from, he packed everything up. He packed up a few of his relatives. He packed up his household goods and all of those things. And he moved into this new area, the promised land that God said that he would give him. But why? Verse 10 holds the answer. It says there, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The simple answer to this is that Abraham responded in faith because he was seeking a home built by God. He wasn't seeking something that came through human descent. He wasn't seeking something that came through his own crafty human ingenuity and the best laid plans of mice and men. No, he was seeking something that came from God directly. His passion was to follow Yahweh. The creator of everything. His passion was to follow Him and to obey Him because He wanted what God had for Him. The funny thing about this is is that Abraham never received the promised land while he was alive. That was his God-given inheritance was the, was the land that ultimately became known as, the, uh, as Israel not the people of Israel, the country of Israel, and that, all of that area. That was the promised land that he was told that he was going to be given. But he never received this while he walked the earth. Though Abraham experienced miracles numerous times throughout his life, he never received the promised land. I mean, let me explain what I mean. Because his grandkids didn't get it either, nor his sons. It was many, many, many generations later that his descendants actually received that promise. 
in, in verses 11 and 12, uh, it talks about some of the miracles that, that Abraham saw in his life. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is a miracle. Sarah was in her 90s when she conceived Isaac. When is the last time you guys saw a 90-year-old pregnant woman? Raise your hand. Guys, she had already had hot flashes. You, Abraham had already went through sleeping with the tent flaps open because she couldn't stand it, and then the next minute closing them all because she was cold now, back to opening them all because she was hot again. I mean, she'd already gone through that. And if I'm Abraham and she's pregnant, I'm like, oh, i got to go through this again? No, just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, she was past childbearing age. I mean, this is a miracle, and we're going to probably talk about that next week more. Right? This is one of the miracles that he received or that he saw in his life. I mean, what about the battle of the kings? We read about that in the Genesis account where Abraham goes out after a couple of kings get thumped by this other group of kings and, and his nephew Lot and all of his possessions are stolen and carried off into captivity. Abraham with his household guard, entire armies couldn't take these guys, but he takes like his household guard. And goes after them and defeats them all and brings back all the loot. Hello, that, my friends, is a miracle. That is a miracle. I mean, we could just keep going on and on and on and on about these miracles. But Abraham, even though he saw these miracles, he never received the promise. I mean, he saw the miracle of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a couple of miracles that happened there. God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah straight out, and, and yet the, Abraham persuaded him to let him go and get his nephew out of it. That's a miracle. And then these cities being destroyed. I mean, that's God's miraculous divine intervention. Right? Abraham saw these kind of things happen in his life, but he never, he never received the promise. But you know, the thing that I find interesting is like the main promise that God had given him was that this is going to be the land. This is what started it all. Abraham, I want you to leave the land that you're in and I want you to go to this new land that I'm going to show you and it's going to be yours and it's going to be your descendants. All of these things, he never received that while he was alive. That's what started it all. He never received it. And the thing that is amazing to me is this never seemed to get Abraham down. Instead, the flame of his faith continued to burn hot. Even though Abraham never received what God had promised to him while he was walking on this earth, he did not let it get him down. How many of us, as soon as, as, soon as God promises us something, as soon as we see a promise in Scripture, as soon as we see something going on, do we let it get us down because we don't receive it right away? I mean, we know that he never received it and never got him down. That he continued to burn white hot in verses 13 through 18. It tells us, yeah, 13 through 16, it tells us that. Look, these all died in faith. He's talking about Abraham and his descendants. And he's also talking about Noah. And he's talking about all those people that we've already talked about in the Faith Hall of Fame. These all died in faith. Not having received 
the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. And here's the kicker. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. I very, very, very rarely, maybe once every four years, underline something in my Bible. Very rarely do I underline something in my Bible. I'm not, I'm not, if you underline in your Bible every week, I don't care, that's fine. But I think if you underline every week, you're eventually your whole Bible is going to be underlined. And then, you know, but they, it has to be something for me to underline. It has to be something huge. I didn't, I don't, this is not the Bible I read during the week. This is just my pulpit Bible. I didn't realize until I opened it up this morning to preach from it that that verse was underlined. This is a powerful statement about why Abraham didn't get down. He wasn't thinking about the life that he left behind. He wasn't thinking about the things that God called him to put aside. Things that some of them in and of themselves weren't bad. But weren't part of what God was calling him to do. Instead he was looking forward to the prize. He was looking forward to that thing that God was calling him to pursue. He was looking forward to that. He knew that there was a future and a hope and all of those things. And he was not looking back. Because if he had looked back he would have had an opportunity to return. And he probably would have returned. Let me just put it in another way. Jesus said this. That if you put your hand to the plow and look back. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. That is a crazy, harsh statement that Jesus is saying. And I think many of us in today's society who aren't farmers don't understand what Jesus is saying. I particularly happen to understand why he's saying that. Because when you are plowing, whether that be with a tractor and a disc or whether that be with a single plow that's being pulled by a horse or whatever it is, you cannot look backwards because if you look backwards, you will make crazy crooked lines and the ground won't get broke up the way that it's supposed to be. But you have to keep your eyes on something that's on the horizon. Paul tells us not looking back and not desiring to go back, but straining forward to receive that prize and that upward call. You understand what I'm saying? See, he wasn't getting down because he wasn't looking back. He wasn't thinking about what he lost. He wasn't thinking about what hadn't yet come. But he was thinking about the promise that God had given him that this was going to be for him and for his family. I just say it this way and then we'll move on. All of these people in the faith hall of fame thus far, including Abraham, were not focused on temporary things of the here and now, but instead they were focused on the eternal. And that focus on the eternal kept them burning white hot. It was the little sliver of air that was coming in to their coal stove that kept them burning so hot. But how does this help us to rekindle our flame? In theological terms, Abraham is often described in this way. He's called the father of the faithful. When, when I went through ordination and, and licensing, there was a question. I'm sure John had the same question. They asked, why is Abraham considered the father of the faithful? Why is Abraham considered the father of the faithful? What does this mean? In one sense, we can answer that question because uh, he 
he's the father of the faithful because he modeled for us a life of faith-filled service to God. And we've briefly talked about some of those exploits, the, the kings and all of those different things, and you're going to read about some of those exploits that he had in that. But that answer is inadequate for explaining why he is the father of the faithful. It is just a start. Verse 12 gives us a huge clue as to why Abraham is often referred to in this way. Verse 12 says, Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sands by the seashore. In other words, Abraham reproduced his faith-filled life in his progeny. Abraham was not the father of the faithful, Because he lived a faith-filled life. He is the father of the faithful because he reproduced that. You're not the father of anything if you don't reproduce. You're just faithful. And it's okay to be faithful. You're a steady heating coal stove sometimes it's just doing its job and it's going through all those things and it's functioning the way that it's supposed to be. And that's not evil. But you're not going to be the father of anything. The progeny, the kids that we're speaking of, starts with Isaac and Jacob, his natural-born family, but it is not limited to those of his natural-born family tree. As a matter of fact, just because you're in his natural family-born tree doesn't mean anything. Starting with his firstborn, which was Ishmael, through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. Who, by the way, is who the Muslims trace their roots back to, is Ishmael. The child that wasn't the child of promise. Abraham's natural born descendant, but not in the list of the faithful. Paul carries this on in the New Testament talking about that just because you were an Israelite by natural birth, by human descent, which is all came from Jacob. It was Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, the deceiver, who was redeemed, and so his name was changed to Israel, which means redeemed. Okay, Just because you're a natural-born descendant of the man named Israel and part of the nation of Israel that came from that one man doesn't mean that you're in the faithful. The ones who are in that list, Abraham's family of faith, are those who also have genuine faith in God. Genuine faith in God. We could talk a lot about the aspects, different aspects of what the genuine faith really is. A lot of ways I could talk about that, but I'm going to restrict my discussion today to one aspect. It's more than what I'm getting ready to talk about. But even though it is more than what I'm getting ready to talk about, it is never less. Yes, I'm saying in order to have genuine faith, this is mandatory. According to the Scriptures. This is part and parcel to it. This family of faith is focused on the internal inheritance and not the temporal. 
We could talk about a ton of things about faith and what genuine faith is, but in every instance, no matter what it is, those of genuine faith do not have their focus on the temporal, those things which we see and feel and can hear and smell and all of those things with our five senses around us. Our focus is on the eternal. We are focused on the eternal God who sent His one and only Son to live a perfect, sinless life and to give that life as a ransom for you and I who have rebelled against Him so that we can have an eternal dwelling with Him. Without a doubt, every single child of the family of faith has got to have their focus on the eternal. That's not to say that we don't tend to the needs of the temporal, that we don't tend to the needs of the here and now, but that we tend to those needs with a focus on what it means for eternity. People with genuine faith, they face struggles and hardships here in the temporary with a completely different outlook. I'm not saying they don't get sad. I'm not saying they don't grieve when people die. I'm not saying any of those things. I mean, it tells us that we do grieve. For instance, with, when it comes to death, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. But we grieve knowing that one day we will be reunited with those who are in the family of faith. See the difference? The focus on the eternal. Sometimes the temporal might overwhelm us. Sometimes it might knock us down. Sometimes we might feel like we got our tooth knocked out. Or we got our eyes swole shut because we're getting so beat up by the world. But those of genuine faith always go back and return to the eternal. But it's more than just hardships and struggles. A person who is a person of genuine faith knows that no matter how good or bad a person is in this life, that it is the eternal that really matters. They view and they say that people are created in the Imago Dei, which is the image of God, that they have worth just because they're human. And that they are to be loved and pointed to the one who can restore and heal and bring freedom and life. They are people who are so focused on the eternal that they are not worried about the fact that somebody might sin and defile me. They say, if defiled I'll be, so what? I'm going to love people. Now understand what I'm saying here because I think there's some confusion that comes in. I'm not talking about us going and jumping in sin with them. Okay? I'm not going to go do heroin to reach a heroin addict. But I'm not going to let the fact that they're doing heroin stop me from living life with them. Being their genuine friend. Of being involved, of coming alongside of them, of loving them, of pointing them to Jesus. And something else about this family of faith this family of faith is not afraid to make others uncomfortable with this focus, even other family members. If you have genuine faith, you're not afraid to make others uncomfortable with that, even other family members. 
Let me go back to this uh, illustration about the snap damper not working just right. When Sarah and I and the kids are in that room where our stove is, which is our family room, which is where we watch TV and stuff, we spend a lot of time there, and that snap damper gets stuck open just a tiny sliver, it gets hot. It doesn't get hot. It gets hot. That's like painfully hot. When you find somebody who has genuine faith, they get hot for Jesus. And see, Sarah and I, we're already warm in that room. And Dylan and Alicia, they're already warm in that room. And so when that stove starts getting hot like that, we start getting uncomfortable. And we start thinking, oh, we got is that thing stuck open again? Let us get up and, and make sure that that thing's not stuck open again. We need that fire to die down. But let me tell you what happens when somebody walks in from outside in the freezing cold when it's down negative wind chill. The people who are outside, the people who aren't, even, aren't warmed up, those people love that coal stove burning like that. They're probably praying when they're coming to my house, let it be fired up. It needs to be hot like that. I'm cold. I'm outside. I need that warmth. I need that security and peace that that provides. I need to be filled up and strengthened by that. I need to be warmed. When somebody gets on fire for the Lord, those of us who are already burning for Him oftentimes feel uncomfortable. We oftentimes feel like what I said about this friend of mine who just gave his life to the Lord and is burning right hot. Let's just wait for a few weeks. He'll settle down. But that's wrong. And he doesn't care if it makes others uncomfortable. And we shouldn't either. Because the ones it's making uncomfortable are just those who are already warm. When I see somebody who's on fire for the Lord, like my own life, when I was living that way, man, everybody's trying to say, man, you're, you're, you're turning into a freak show and you're going to freak people out in the world out. Listen to me. People that I worked with in the army literally followed me home from my unit and said, dude, can we talk? And I'm like, okay, what are you doing here? Well, I followed you home. Why? Because something is so radically different about you. And I don't know what it is, but I know that it's something I need. Can we talk about it? Now understand something. This, I'm not saying that we should live lifestyle evangelism and not tell people how to get saved. It's not what I'm, I'm not building up something for that. That is actually incorrect. We have to have a lifestyle and words, both. I have to explain the gospel to people. They will not get saved just because they see me burn for Jesus i got to tell them why I'm burning and how that all happens. Amen? They go hand in hand. But people would follow me home. They would do all of those things. They wanted to come and see. And I confessed to you guys a few weeks ago that that had been something in my own life that had died out. That that had been something in my own life that wasn't happening the way that it needed to be happening. What made me so blazing hot when I first got saved is that I had my focus on the eternal. And I wasn't worried about, about the people who were, who were here inside the body of Christ already and them being uncomfortable. And obviously I wasn't at this church when all that happened, but I, I wasn't concerned about that. 
I was concerned about warming those outside who needed to know. And let me tell you, the ones that stayed uncomfortable were the ones who weren't willing to blaze hot with me. But the ones who were willing to blaze hot with me, it started to seem pretty normal. You see, the coal that's inside the stove that's burning blazing hot with the other coal is not complaining that the coal next to it's too hot. As a matter of fact, all the coal in the stove doesn't blaze hot like that. But instead, it's a pile that's built upon the top that's already, the part that's already burning. And as that burns out and is extinguished, kind of like us living our life, and we live our life here on the earth, and then we go home and to be in glory with our Father in heaven, then the next generation is there. And it has been heated up, blazing hot by that layer that was below it. And the ones that are burning hot are not griping at the other coal. Cool down. You're too hot. I lost that. And I want to challenge you to get, a, to, to, to get that back in your life because I've recently got it back in my life. How did it come back in my life? You guys know this already. Bowling, of all things. Bowling. Brian Huffman arranged with Stephanie and Dean, the owner of the bowling alley, for us to be able to do, our life group to be able to do an outreach up there to invite people to come to that. We did that outreach, and that sparked something in me because I started realizing I did not know anybody inside of this community who was not already born again, or at least coming to the church if they weren't born again already. I had been isolated in the 16 months that I had been here, and this was a problem. And so I got involved in bowling. I went to do this bowling outreach. I said, we did the bowling outreach. I couldn't figure out who to invite to come to it. I was struggling. So I looked it up, and I said, I'm going to join the Bad Bowlers League. And many of you know that. And I am telling you, it is freaky what God has been doing, and you need to understand something. I don't think just because a door is open, we're supposed to walk through it. I do not subscribe to that theology, nor does the Bible. There are plenty of open doors that you should run away from. Like, there might be an open door for you to go sell drugs. That doesn't mean it's Jesus' will. Amen? Okay? So we have to hold those up to discernment. But I, I, I just, just as I'm doing this and I start meeting people through this, I say to Brian Huffman, Brian, what about me? You know, I bowled when I was a kid. I was semi-decent. I wasn't great. You know, I was a kid. You know, it's been away from it for years. What about me helping out with the with your team next year as far as like coaching? I said, you know, I'm not a great bowler, but hey, I can come in there and I can motivate kids. And Brian said, you know who needs help is the Oil City team because sometimes they have, you know, work and jobs and all those things that we've all got to do. And so I talked, he introduced me to Sheila, the head coach of that team. And I went to be and said to Sheila, hey, how about next year? And Sheila came back later that day and said, how about you come and hang out this year? And I'm, I was thinking assistant coach in bowling, which is ridiculous. <laughs> we all know it is. That's why we're all laughing. <laughs> right? I, I took a 20-year hiatus from bowling, and I'm back in bowling in three weeks, and I'm helping out with a team. And, and I'm connecting with a kid named Noah, who God is making me, I'm not talking about this in a, in a creepy way, who God is making me fall in love with. Not, not in a creepy way. Like, I'm actually starting to love this kid. Starting to care what's going on in his life. I'm able to stand and encourage him. Or Duncan. 
or Debbie and Paige or, or, or maybe Ryan and Amber. And, and I could just give you lists of other people. It's, it's going on. And, and I have said, I told Sheila and, and Justin, the other, two of the other coaches that are on the team, this whole bowling thing has reinvigorated my own faith. It's like I got a shot in the arm. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm burning hot again for Jesus. And let me tell you something real quick. It might be making you uncomfortable that I'm coaching bowling, but it is not making Noah uncomfortable. Noah bowled the best match he's ever bowled in his life on Thursday night because I stood next to him and just tried to encourage him and love him about something he cares about. And I'm starting to burn hot again. I want to encourage you to figure out a way to burn hot to focus on the eternal and to reproduce. See, the whole thing about it is reproduction. And we will not reproduce just sitting inside of this building. We've got to do like Jeff is doing when he gets involved with the Little League and going out there and trying to be salt and light in the Little League and not trying to be forceful and beat people up, but coaching a team and standing alongside of people and, and sharing with them as God gives them the opportunities and putting slats inside of fences. And we got to do like Tina does where she's over at Seneca Place where that's where she works at, but saying, you know, we can come over there and we can bring music and, and sing songs of God to them and bring joy into their life and maybe point them to Jesus. And I could continue to go on and on about the different examples. See, Rachel Smith, our missions and outreach team leader, is trying to get us all to consider what missional living is and to go out there and to burn white hot. And some of us might be getting uncomfortable because people around us are beginning to burn white hot. And here is the choice that you have. Be uncomfortable and beg for the snap damper to get shut or jump in the fire with us. I want to invite you to jump in the fire. I may not see oil city and the oil region transformed in my lifetime but i know that god loves the people that are here i know that he wants to transform it and so i want to encourage you to look at that it feels good to burn like this and it definitely feels good for those who who don't know him those who just want to be loved those who just want to come into his presence though and, and, and many of them want to come into his presence and don't even know it yet they just want somebody to care. Let me just ask a question real quick, just by a show of hands. And everybody, if this is how you feel, raise your hand. Don't you want to know, if you, raise your hand if you do, that somebody cares about you? Who, man, you're not odd. Everybody does. So let's burn white hot for him and show that we care. Amen? Let's go out and do something. Let's go out and show people that we care. Not that we're trying to fill our building up but that we actually care about them and are meeting them where they're at. Amen? Amen? Now, I told you in the homework, if you're reading it, you've got homework this week, the first three days, Genesis 12, 1 through 9 on Monday, Genesis 13, 14 through 18 on Tuesday, and Genesis 15 on Wednesday. Now, you could actually just start reading there in the Genesis 12 and read on all the way through, I think it's like chapter 23 or 24, and reading about, about Abraham. But these are specific places that God had promised to Abraham something that he never received while he was on this earth, but it did not get him down. And then Thursday, Acts 7, 1 through 8, 
Friday, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13, and Saturday, Matthew 24, 36 through 51. These last three days are about how our focus is to be on the eternal in light of Abraham's story. We don't know what God's promise to re- we don't know when God's promise to return to the earth will happen, but we know that it will, and we need to have as many other people ready for that return as we humanly can by His empowerment. We need to take others to heaven with us. Amen. Let's pray, Father. We ask you to have your way in our lives. Lord, help us burn blazing hot for Jesus. Lord, help us to have love for people in our community. Lord, whether it's to go to Seneca Place or whether it's to go to the Little League field or whether it's to coach soccer or whether it's to get involved in a bowling league or coach bowling or, or, or whatever it is, whether it's to be in these running groups that Rebecca is in and, and others. Lord, whatever it is, would you help us to be blazing hot for you? And Lord... Would you help those around us that are part of our church family not to shy away from it because it's uncomfortable, but instead to jump in the fire with us? Because, Lord, people like Noah and Duncan, people like the the, the young men who are on the baseball teams that Jeff is involved with, people like those elderly who are in Seneca Place, Lord, people who use the the park up in... um, the Lincoln Land of Laughter that we paint as a church, Lord, they need to know your love. And so would you help us in that? It's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen.